0: In the case 23 2832, Legacy Cares.
1: Appearances on the Legacy Cares matter, please. First of all, do we have anybody either on screen or on the telephone?
0: Judge, we have several parties on the phone, but I believe they're all just observing.
1: Okay, nobody actually making an appearance? I don't believe so. Okay, fair enough. Then let's go to the courtroom. Okay.
2: Good afternoon, Your Honor. Hank Taylor for the debtor of Legacy Cares. Thank you.
0: Good afternoon, Judge Jennifer Giemo on behalf of the U.S.
3: Trustee. Thank you. Good Robert Charles and Allison Whitehill from Lewis Roca, on behalf of UMB Bank N.A.
4: Good afternoon, Lamar Hawkins, counsel for uh, Spray Home Southwest Inc. Image Building Systems and D.H. Pace Company Inc. Thank you.
1: Good afternoon, Your Honor, Phil Giles on behalf of Kearney Electrical Incorporated.
4: Good afternoon, Your Honor. James Ugaldi on behalf of Eastern Funding as successor to Macro Lease Corporation.
5: Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Brad Cosman and Katie Allaire of Perkins Coie on behalf of Insight Investments, LLC, the equipment vessel.
1: Thank you.
6: Good afternoon, Your Honor, happy to be here. Uh, Robert Warnicky, on behalf of Hayden Companies, LLC.
7: Good afternoon, Your Honor, uh, John Ryan, also on behalf of Hayden Companies, LLC. Thank
5: you. Good afternoon, Your Honor, Andrew Abraham, on behalf of Pacific Proving, LLC.
6: Good afternoon, Your Honor, Patrick Dirksen for Jayco Designs and Installation, LLC. Thank you.
0: afternoon, Your Honor. Catherine Anderson of Ballard Spar on behalf of OVG Facilities, LLC. Good
6: afternoon, Your Honor. Ward Stapleton appearing on behalf of Salt River, Pima, Indian Community Gaming Enterprise,
7: or Casino, Arizona. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Eli Inger of Udall Shumway appearing on behalf of RKS Plumbing and Mechanical, Inc. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Jim Santos on behalf of uh, Oakland Construction Company.
1: Thank you. Any other appearances? Well, looks like we're uh, all done with COVID and it's nice <laughs> to see people in the car room here today. Uh, Mr. Taylor, let's go ahead and start with you, if you would please. But let me tell you the order I'm interested in talking about things. Uh, first of all, I'd like to talk about some of the applications to employ. I know they're not on counter, but I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Then I'd like to talk about the utility motion, uh, then cash management, and then finish up with. Uh, Position financing. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. So, with respect to the employment applications, I've seen yours, I've seen MCA's, and I've seen one other. Now I'm forgetting who that was. Uh, forms of order actually submitted. That would be the Pepeti Wise firm, Your Honor. Okay. So, with respect to your firm and special counsel, Uh, The one thing that gave me pause is the language that you've included to the effect of. um, We have some feedback on the telephone. If you're on the telephone, please mute your phone so it doesn't come into the courtroom. Thank you. So anyhow, the, the forms of order for your firm and special counsel has a line saying something to the effect that it is a nunc pro order retroactive back to the date of the bankruptcy filing.
0: All participants are now in listen-only mode.
1: Very good. Okay. I'm mindful of the Supreme Court case on Acevedo and the, the Diocese of uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, talking about how bankruptcy judges ought not to be doing the nunc pro-tunc orders. I'm not even sure it's necessary to say it. If you can just eliminate that reference to nuc Tunk and retroactive back to uh, to May 1, uh, we'll, at a later date when you come up with your fee applications, uh, address whether it makes any difference at all. Okay. We will do that, Your Honor. I'll resubmit those forms of order. The MCA order is a little bit different, however, and that one has lots of different language in the order. Uh, and lots of different language in the retainer agreements, along the lines of uh, indemnity and exculpation and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't really want to decide that today by signing an order for them. Rather, I'd, I'd like to give the US Trustee's Office an opportunity to look at that, other creditors in the case that have an interest in exploring uh, all of the uh, uh, the bells and whistles on that retainer agreement. Um, and so i entertain a proposal for how we would do that uh, different than the formal order lodged so far.
2: Well, Your Honor, I think we have set a hearing on um, the Miller Buckfire application for as an investment banker May 25th, uh, we filed an application to employ them under 328, so we went ahead and noticed a hearing on that. Can
1: everybody hear Mr. Taylor? They're not hearing you, so Okay, I a little problem with the microphone in the last hearing. So, All right. right, well, I'll try to speak up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's up
2: bit, it's so. all
5: the way up now.
1: It is, okay.
2: As I was saying, Your Honor, we, we have filed an application to employ Nora Buckfire as an investment banker for the debtor. Uh, that's an application under 328, so we thought it best to notice that for a hearing and notice it out for objections. Uh, I, I'd be fine adding the MCA application to that hearing if the court would like us to do that.
1: Okay, and that again is on May what? May 25th. At what time?
2: At uh, 10 10 a.m., I believe, Your Honor. Yes.
1: Okay. And what about EPIC? I saw that you filed an application to employ EPIC, but I haven't seen an order yet.
2: Yeah, and in fact, I haven't, Your Honor. I thought I might ask the court about that today. EPIC is a um, claims and noticing agent. I think the court understands that. They're not actually being employed under 327 or 328. Uh, they are under an entirely different statute. I didn't know if the court wanted me to upload an order for them or if you wanted to hold a hearing on that. Uh, I don't know that it's very controversial, but I don't know how the court wants to
1: handle it. you want to agent. not pro tunk If so, it's uh, semi-controversial. If you want to uh, make it more generic like yours and uh, special counsel, is that what you have in mind?
2: Uh, that's fine, Your Honor. I can make it. I can take out the pro tunk for them if you want and upload
1: an order. That's yeah, I have not even looked at the the EPIC application, but if you want to lodge a formal order and, and excise that uh, pro tunk language, I'll always take a look at it and decide whether we're actually going to talk about it on May 25 or whether I can sign off on it now. Okay. Any other employment issues that we ought to be talking about?
2: Your Honor, we'll have one more application that's not on file, and that's for uh, another special counsel, Slania Law. They are... Bond and Transactional Council. I'll um, well, bear in mind your comments today about their order, but they're in the same special councils.
1: But, but you haven't counsel. filed that application I haven't, yet? Either. haven't
2: filed that yet. It'll be filed today or tomorrow.
1: Okay. We'll see that when we see it. All right, so that, that gets us past the uh, employment applications. So let's then turn to your utility motion, please. Uh, on the utility motion, Your Honor, I don't think that, um, I think that,
2: and I'll let, Ms. Giamma speak to this, but the the, the U.S. Trustee had lodged some objections. I think that um, pretty much the the point of her objections, she didn't want to have uh, any sort of finding in this interim order that there was adequate assurance for any specific utility. Uh, You know, the the limit of this order is that you can't shut us down until we get to a final hearing, at least. Um, And and that's, I think, pretty clear in our order that we don't ask uh, any finding on adequate assurance at this point. Uh, As far as the, she had some concerns about the process uh, that we have proposed for determining adequate assurance. And my thoughts on that, and and Ms. Sciamo can share hers with that, is that this has already been noticed, this motion's already been served on the utilities. Uh, We'll certainly serve out an interim order that sets the final order on it, final hearing on it. And my thought is if the utilities have a concern about that process, they can weigh in and and we can address it with the utilities. my position at the moment is that the procedure that we have suggested in this motion comports with Section 366. Uh, and so, but again, I think that's something that can ultimately be resolved at a final hearing, uh, uh, hopefully later this
1: month. In terms of a final hearing, what day are you looking for? Well,
2: I think we'd like to have a, that May 25th date. If we can have time there, that would be good for us.
7: Okay.
1: Have you actually had any discussions with any of the utilities since the filing of that motion? And hey, Your Honor,
7: I, I got a
2: call from, uh, in-house counsel for SRP, which is actually the biggest utility. Um, and they just had some questions about, you know, the motion, uh, uh, why, um, specifically the fact that the account that they have is actually with legacy sports, which is not a better entity, but the money that they have on deposit is our money. So, uh, that's, they were just doing, you were asking about the background, they didn't have any specific concerns about the motion, so certainly SRP is aware of the motion.
1: That's right. not exactly saying that they've consented to the motion. No, I so. wouldn't say anybody's consented at this point, Your Honor. But your proposal today is to have an interim order that's notice okay. out to all the utilities saying here's the process you're proposing uh, and that I'm at least on an interim basis approving uh, that there's no language in there about uh, making a finding of adequate assurance that's that's to be uh, dealt with at the final hearing and then see if anybody comes in to uh, oppose your process or your adequate assurance finding correct your honor okay fair enough let me ask you this um i'm i'm guessing that there are a fair number of utilities who actually took a deposit pre-petition am i right about that yes sir. uh and each of them are probably different right or have they all been burned up pre petition?
2: No, in fact, I think all of the deposits are intact. They haven't been have been tapped pre petition Your Honor.
1: And are those pre deposits going to be a part of the 50% number that you want to put into a separate account, or is that in addition to? That's in addition to, Your Honor. Okay, good. Anything else you'd like me to hear on the 366 motion? No, I'll let Ms. Yama speak to it. Okay, thank you. Thank you,
0: Judge. So, right, We've set forth in our objection um, Objections to the the very detailed procedure that the debtor was proposing for the um, Utilities to come in and object. I Recently received a revised order from debtors counsel, which appears good to me because it doesn't have those procedures. So I don't know if I'm Confused um, but I didn't think that those procedures that were in place that there be correspondence with the debtor before they file an objection I think Basically, what we're saying is we have no problem with the court issuing an order saying that uh, you cannot terminate any of these utilities pending a final hearing. Um, but as far as requiring that there be correspondence with debtors counsel beforehand, we object to that and think that the d- utilities should just be provided with a definite deadline by, fil- by which to file objections and then the matter can be heard on the- at the final hearing.
1: Let's have Mr. Taylor clarify whether the form of order that he wants me to sign now as an interim order, is going to have anything said about the procedures? No, Your Honor,
2: it doesn't. That, that's in the final order that we've attached to our motion.
1: Okay, so it sounds like you've got the U.S. Trustee on board with the full order you have in mind. Then.
0: I, just, I believe so, right. The most recent one, we can make sure,
1: I believe we're fine with that. Okay. okay. Is there anybody else that would like to speak to the utility motion filed by the debtor here? Okay, then uh, Mr. Taylor, why don't you and Ms. Giamma work on that order, submit it to me, and I'll sign that interim order. uh, Let's stop here for a second because I really jumped the gun a little bit. This is a brand new case, just filed on Monday. Maybe we ought to step back and have you do a little description about what is this case about, what are we trying to accomplish here, why did we come here in the first place. um, Sure, Your Honor, I've got a whole list of notes for you on that.
2: Your Honor, Legacy Cares the Debtor owns Legacy Park, which used to be known as Bell Bank Park. It's in South Mesa. It's a very large sports facility. Uh, It's a 320-acre project that has uh, all sorts of sport venues, both indoor and outdoor. It has baseball fields, soccer fields, a soccer stadium. It has indoor basketball and volleyball courts. It has pickleball courts. Uh, It even has a stage and festival grounds. Uh, It's a very large project. Uh, your honor the the facility does not the the debtor does not actually own the ground on which it is built Uh, the the project was built on a ground lease Uh, the ground lease is a 40-year lease the lessor is pacific proving that's mr abraham's client
1: i didn't see anything that indicates how much that monthly payment is or is it an annual payment it is a monthly payment your honor i believe the monthly payment is
2: somewhere a little bit north of three hundred thousand dollars Little bit north of three hundred thousand dollars, and they are current on their lease payments your honor. Okay. um the debtor however owns the improvements uh and the improvements were constructed your honor through um bond financing through the issuance of two issue two issues of ida bonds uh, back in 2020 and 2021 um the bond trustee for the bondholders is UMB Bank. They're represented by Mr. Charles here today. Uh, and the funds of that uh, bond financing were used to construct the improvements. And as like I say, there's a lot of improvements there. It's a huge facility. Uh, the construction, I think it's safe to say, did not go smoothly in the sense that uh, as we sit here today, there are a number of mechanics liens that have been filed and recorded against the property. Um, and uh, so that's an issue that we will be dealing with. The property opened, Your Honor, in February of 2022. So it's been fully operational for a
1: little over a year now. In other words, all the construction is done now?
2: Yes, it is, Your Honor. Okay. Um, as far as the operations go, the debtor, Your Honor, is a nonprofit. The debtor only has four employees. Uh, the, the operations at the park are actually managed by a park manager under an agreement with the debtor. Um, The structure of that, the the nonprofit entity that owns it and the qualified management agreement with the park operator, uh, that was necessitated by the bond finance and that structure. Um, The original manager of the project, Your Honor, was Legacy Sports, LLC. Uh, It has a similar name to the debtor, but they are completely different entities. Uh, Legacy Sports is no longer the manager, they were terminated middle of last month there's a new manager in place under another qualified management agreement and that's elite sports group Um, the debtor as I said only has four employees the employees who actually operate the park those are employees of the manager elite sports group Um, so that's in a nutshell the operational structure of the park Uh, the park your honor as I said draws customers both locally and, and nationally you know there are a lot of local youth sports teams that that have their practices and tournaments out there, and it was designed, your honor, as well to attract large national <coughs> you know, baseball, basketball, uh, pickleball, those types of tournaments from from organizations across the country. I'll turn now quickly to the the, the debt against the company, uh, the, the the company and assets. As I said, the the primary security creditor here is UMB Bank as the bond trustee. Uh, the total debt that uh, is, was owed as the petition date on the two bond issuances is just a little bit north of $300 million. Um, the debtor defaulted on its bond obligations, I think, back in October of last year. Uh, and since that default, the, uh, the the bond trustee has also made, has made advances to... Uh, support uh, the park's operations. Those advances are necessary, Your Honor, because literally since the doors opened, the park has not been able to operate in the black on an, an oper- operational basis. The park loses approximately a million dollars a month, and that's before debt service. Uh, so in order to keep the park open and functioning, the bond trustee has made significant advances pre petition To the debtor to do that, and those pre-petition advances are just a little bit more than nine million dollars. So, when we filed the bankruptcy petition, your honor, we owed approximately three hundred and ten million dollars to the bondholders, and and UMB is the trustee for them. Uh, The bondholders have a blanket lien on our assets, your honor. They have a leasehold deed of trust. They have an assignment of rents. They have a UCC security interest. Um, and so they are clearing away the biggest creditor in this case. Um, as I mentioned previously, there are mechanics liens that have been recorded against the property. Um, those total about, in, in total number, they're $39 million. Uh, we we think those probably, that number's not accurate. There's probably some double counting uh, involved, but it's a significant amount. Uh, there are other uh, creditors who have. Leased property that is used at the facility, uh, or or financed specific property. What I you know called PMSI creditors, um, a couple of them are represented here today, uh, and um, but for the most part, the, most of the most of the infrastructure was constructed using the bond financing. Um, what's brought us here to bankruptcy today are, are several factors. Uh, clearly, the ongoing losses at the park. Uh, is a significant problem. Um, a, a $1 million burn rate per month is probably cause enough to put someone in bankruptcy. Um, but we have the mechanics lien litigation. The mechanics lien holders, Your Honor, uh, have did commence pre petition foreclosure actions in Superior Court, and that was pressing us. Uh, and in addition, we've been sued or we've had uh, arbitration demands from significant unsecured creditors. Um, and so, a host of factors that brought us to this court today. Um, the path forward, Your Honor, um, is is pretty simple from our perspective. The property needs to be sold, and that's what we intend to do on a relatively fast track basis. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago that we have employed or were seeking employment of Miller Buckfire. Miller Buckfire was retained to market the assets of the park on a national basis. Uh, that has been going on for about a month and a half at this point, Your Honor, uh, the Malibu Fire has entered into an NDA agreements with various potential buyers. They've set up a data room. Uh, we anticipate that the sale process is going to bring us to a point where, hopefully, in mid-June, we will have identified a stalking horse bidder for the park. Um, and assuming that happens, we anticipate filing a sale motion with the court. Um, it is also quite possible, Your Honor, given the circumstances and context of this case, we may need to um, close a sale in the context of a plan. So we may be filing a plan and disclosure statement at about that same time. Uh, our thinking at the moment, the plan is to have um, a sale hearing, perhaps in conjunction with a, a, a confirmation hearing sometime in August. Um, Likely a closure of the sale certainly no later than the end of September. Um, and as the court can glean from all of that, this is going to be a liquidating chapter 11. The plan will presumably involve distributing what's left after the sale. Um, and uh, we, we think at this point that we'll be able to confirm, we hope we'll be able to confirm a plan uh, by, uh, by October one. So this will case will move fast. It has to move fast, Your Honor, simply because um, of the amount of money that the, the park loses on a monthly basis. It just simply cannot stay as is. Um, and so that, that, Your Honor, in a nutshell, is where we are and where we see this going. Okay, thank you. I think Your Honor wanted to talk about the cash management.
1: Let's, let's take maybe a little easier one, and that is the proof of claim deadline. We're wanting to set a deadline. Yeah. Uh, I think the UST. Suggested perhaps uh, uh, we'll stick with the 60 day time period under the local rules. Uh, have you worked something out with the UST?
2: Not on that particular issue, Honor. Uh, there were a number of concerns that, that the UST raised. Uh, as far as the, the, the general claim deadline, uh, we're asking for a shorter period than 60 days just because we would like to have the claims filed and, and understand more clearly the universe of claims in this case before we get to the point of having a hearing on a disclosure statement. We need to have that information in the disclosure statement to
1: ballot the plan. It's only a two-week differential, right?
2: Right, yeah, I mean, I think that it is, no, it's actually 21 days, Your Honor. We're, We're anticipating, if the court were to enter a bar date order today or tomorrow, we would have it noticed out, and that would give creditors approximately 39 days. To file a proof of claim by that de- deadline, uh, just strictly on you know the actual days involved. Um, a 60-day deadline is going to put us closer to the end of the first week in July, and that will make it difficult for us to prepare a disclosure statement and get the hearing and, and get it approved at a hearing uh, in time to have a planned confirmation hearing, hopefully in August. So the What's driving that timing? What's driving our desire to, you know, have a little bit shorter of a deadline here, is having those claims placed, proofs of claim determined, so that we can give a fulsome disclosure in the disclosure statement about the universe of claims and what unsecured creditors might expect to get under a plan. Um, I think, Your Honor, that I understand the, you know, the presumptive sixty days in the local rule, you know, it. it, it, it Bankruptcy rule 2002A only requires 21 days, so we're doing better, much better than the bankruptcy rules actually require, and we do think this is a unique case that requires a little bit short of a deadline. I would add that, again, assuming EPIC is retained in this case, which they really need to be, they're going to make it very easy to um, file a proof of claim. They have a website already set up for the debtor, they have the ability to allow creditors to file claims electronically through their website, we're asking for that. Um, and so, in reality, it's it's going to be very easy for creditors out there to um, to file claims. So, uh, I, I would ask that um, I would ask that we have that that shorter deadline for, for general and secure claims. We we have the 180 day deadline, of course, for the government. Um, there's no dispute about that. I think the other concerns that Ms. Giamo raised um, had to do with some language in the bar date. Notice, at least not language that I found in what we have filed, that said that creditors could not file proofs of claim after the deadline. Of course, they can. Uh, proofs of claim that they can do that. Uh, so we've, we've we've struck that language out of the bar date notice. Um, and then there's a separate publication notice because we're also going to publish this once in the uh, in the Arizona Republic. And that publication notice doesn't have any of that language in there. Um, other than that, I think. I think we've addressed, other than the, the deadline for general and secure creditors, I believe we've addressed the U.S. Trustee's concerns. But oh, I'll call
1: Ms. Talk Give me about. the date that you want.
2: I want July 16th, right? July 16th? Yeah. Good. Ms. It was June 16th. Sorry, June 16th the date July 16th.
0: Thank you, Judge. Um, As for the bar date order, before the hearing, I did submit a revised um, order to um, debtors counsel, and he hasn't had a chance to look at it. So hopefully now we can resolve it. We suggest, I would suggest July 3rd as the bar date. And that's actually only 17 days longer than what is proposed. um, And that would be just about 60 days from today. So I think that would be a sufficient compromise. And we I hope that the court will agree and that we can agree to put a July 3rd deadline. Um, Regarding the other issues we had, um, I have gone through and redlined the proposed order because to omit um, first, there's very, very specific wordy instructions here about how proofs of claim need to be filed, what supporting document needs to be submitted, how they're served, and I think that's all unnecessary and complicates things. I think that the bankruptcy court website, the bankruptcy code, and the rules should suffice to inform creditors of how to file proof of claim. And you're just making a trap for the unwary when you start adding in more provisions in an order. Really this order should just say, this is the proof of claim deadline, This is by, this is the time by which you need to file your proof of claim. Which is what the typical bar date order says this one goes into much more detail about what's required I and mean, even specifying that it needs to be in English I, I think we have a problem with all of that so we would request that you agree that that should be taken out and then the only other problem we have is regarding the um, item that debtors counsel just mentioned which is that there is a provision in the Order that says you will be forever barred and stopped and enjoined from asserting such claim against debtor or filing a proof of claim with respect thereto as a consequence of failing to timely file your claim. As we pointed out in our response, that that language contravenes the bankruptcy rules, which do provide that a party can file and, and bankruptcy case law stating that a party can file a late par- filed proof of claim under appropriate circumstances. It so we would like ask Mr. that.
1: Taylor's already addressed that and feels like you're on the same page.
0: Well, the last the, I don't know I want to make sure we're on the same page about that because the last edit or revision I received from them contained that language in there still. And I don't I think that should be out as well as any language addressing the impact of a failure to file timely file proof of claim on that creditor's receipt of any distributions on the plan or entitlement to vote.
1: Mr. Taylor, it looks like you want to say something here. Yeah, Your Honor, I think there's,
2: there's two things here. There's language in the notice that addresses the ability to assert a claim in the case and the ability to file a claim. Two different things in our view. Filing a claim, they can file a proof of claim whenever they want. It can be late. We agree with that. The assertion language is, I think it's fairly standard in bar date notice. It says you can't assert a claim if you don't timely file a proof of claim and have to file one. And that's pretty straightforward. You know, you can't, you can't vote on a plan. You can't <coughs> be heard in the chapter 11 and you're not going to get into just be distributions. That, that language, Your Honor, I think is, is necessary because, I mean, certainly lawyers might know that to be the case, but lay people might not know that that if you don't file your claim timely, you're not going to be able to assert that claim and protect your interest in the case. So that language we believe has to stay.
0: Okay. well, in response to that, I would say that that contravenes the fact that if you get court approval to late file a proof of claim, then you are entitled to assert the claim. So it's a bit contradictory to say to someone, if you don't timely file your proof of claim, you're forever barred from asserting the claim. That's not the case. Under the bankruptcy rules, a party can ask under appropriate circumstances to file a late claim. So in order to preserve that right, I think we should not have any of this verbiage about forever being a barred and a stopped from asserting a claim. And those, those matters should be addressed as and when they arrive arise. Um, you know in terms of you know voting and all that, I don't I've not seen that in the standard bar date orders that I've been seeing over the last decade. Um, I think that that language is unnecessary, and it's also contravenes the bankruptcy rules that give parties a right to ask for a late-filed proof of claim under appropriate circumstances.
1: Okay. Does everybody else like to speak to this issue? Mr. Santos?
7: <laughs> only on Honor, behalf- only on uh, on the part of the procedure and the, and the supporting documentation which seems to be required under the order uh, far excessive I, I believe um, Oakland performed under a hundred million dollar cost plus contract in order to upload to the court and file with the court with our proof of claim every receipt uh, would be quite a burden and burden on the court burden on Oakland as well uh, and the normal procedure would allow us to present our claim in a more uh, less formalized matter perhaps. Of course, making available to anyone who needs them all the documentation that they need to go through and support the claim uh, rather than actually file all of that with the claim.
1: So is yours a timing issue? I need a lot more time to be able to get my claim filed or is yours a just help me file my claim like I ordinarily would do in any other bankruptcy case?
7: Uh, it's, it's a little bit of both. Uh, the redaction that would be needed to... Upload the entire job file of Oakland to show every hour of labor and every dollar of expenditure for a cost plus contract would be very time consuming, uh, and perhaps even dangerous for us because we would surely missed something that shouldn't have been, uh, re- or should have been redacted. Um, so that's why I don't think we need, and I, I'm also worried that it's a trap because no matter what we give, there's always another layer of documentation. We might upload a, a, a ledger. Uh, and then the, the, might, the objection might be, well, where's the canceled checks? Um, so as, as we would, I'm afraid that we would be falling into a trap of what was loaded, what was uploaded with your proof of claim and what was not, as opposed to what or, ordinarily would be uploaded. And, and in this case, you know, we would you know, provide any information to anyone who needs it to verify our proof of claim in the normal course. I just don't. That we should be forced to file it with the proof of claim, especially on the accelerated schedule that we're proposing.
1: So you don't like June 16, but you do like July
7: 3. Can I say that? I'll meet whatever deadline the court sets. Uh, but if it's also burdened with the entire job file of Oakland to attach to our proof of claim, I would prefer the later. Okay.
1: And do you think that a discussion with Mr. Taylor can help you get to the? It could. Okay, to the finish line on what exactly you need to file. Yes. Okay. Mr. Taylor, looks like you want to say something.
7: Yeah,
2: Your Honor, I'd like, like to, uh, if I may. Here's um, what the bar date notice says about the instructions for filing a proof of claim. It says each proof of claim must be written in English. Include a claim amount denominated in the United States dollars conform substantially to official form 410 and be signed by the holder of the claim or by an authorized agent of the holder of the claim along with documentation of such authorization. That's the instructions. It says original signatures are required. Again, that's what the form requires. So it sounds like Mr.
1: Santos is hung up on the uh, documentation. Well, here's
2: what it says about supporting documentation. It says each proof of claim form must include supporting documentation in accordance with bankruptcy rules 3001C and 3001D. I mean, we just simply referred to the rule. I think, as far as the documentation supporting a proof of claim, um, you know, this this happens often. You have very large claim files or claim documents, and normally the way it works is you file, you know, some statement about your claim, and maybe you know a statement that if the U.S. trustee or other parties want additional information, you'll provide it. Um, you know, there's there's ways to satisfy that requirement uh, without having to upload. Five thousand pages of documents. Um, we we work around that all the time, your honor. But as far as what the notice says, again, I don't see anything in the notice that imposes any greater burdens than what official form four ten does and what the bankruptcy list.
0: Okay. Uh, may I respond to that, your honor? Yes. Um, I think the best way to handle that, your honor, what I suggested. I don't think um, judge's counsel has had an opportunity to look at my revision. But my suggestion is that we just say. Proofs of claim must be filed and served upon the debtor in accordance with the instructions on the bankruptcy court's website, and we would have a link to it in the order, Um, the bankruptcy rules, uh, the federal bankruptcy rules, and the local rules. I mean, then, you know, there's no question here about, I mean, there's a whole page, uh, you know, talking about signatures. It's completely unnecessary, and I don't think it's appropriate to put it in there if the rules dictate and the form dictates um, what has to be filed for the proof of claim.
2: Uh, Your Honor, I think if it—I'm happy to look at her revisions, and I don't—I'm not wedded to any language. If it satisfies the court as far as what needs to be said to creditors, we'll—we'll we'll agree to it. I mean, that's simple. This is not something that should hang things up. I don't think.
1: Okay. Anybody else like to speak to this one? All right. So first of all, i, I think July three is a little bit of a tricky one because the very next day is a holiday. July three is a Monday. It's uh, kind of a sandwich day. Let's call our uh, our claims bar date June thirty. That's a Friday before, and I'm going to leave it to Mr. Santos, Ms. Giamo, and Mr. Taylor to craft a formal order that works here. Um, If it helps you at all, I'd like to make it less complicated than more complicated, Um, but it sounds like Mr. Taylor feels like uh, there's a solution in here somewhere, and I'll leave it to the good lawyers to find that solution and lodge it with me, but uh, have a June 30 deadline, please.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. Okay. All
0: right. Uh, just for clarification, because I don't want to go back and forth with counsel on this, um, does your honor agree that we can be taking out the language that prevents parties from filing late file proofs of claim? Oh, yes, your honor.
2: that, that we, we agree to take out that language about not okay. being able to file a proof of claim. There
0: you go.
1: Okay. Let me ask you this, Ms. Gemmel. uh Committees. Is there a pitch to form a committee? What's your sense as to whether a committee is coming?
0: Um, yes, yes, Your Honor. So as we know, this case was filed four days ago. We did um, initiate the uh, – we, we sent out the solicitations for a committee immediately, and we're trying our hardest to get one formed as quickly as possible, but obviously there's a lot that goes into it. We have to have the solicitations out. We have to have um, at least three responses um, of, by people who are willing to serve, um, and then we have to have a meeting where the committee is formed and then they have to have time for counsel. So the biggest issue for the U.S. Trustee here today on all of these matters is sort of making sure that the debtor is allowed to pay its bills on time and do what it's doing to keep itself uh, valuable for sale. We get that. But also to keep the status quo as it is so that when a committee is formed, the creditors committee can come in here and all of their objections will be preserved.
1: And your anticipation is that uh, if there's going to be a committee, you'll know about it, and they'll be on hand for the May 25 hearing?
0: I'm hoping. I'm hoping. I mean, we've gotten one response so far, but just one. But, again, you know, the case was just filed. So hopefully next week um, we'll get a, a few more. Once we get three uh, people that have expressed interest, I will start the process of putting together a conference call to set up a committee, and we can always add committee members later.
1: Okay. Okay. All right, thank you. So then, Mr. Taylor, can we move to the next one, which is the cash management issue?
2: Your Honor, I don't know if if Ms. Giamo sent me an order on this, too. I I know that I had had, uh, reviewed her objections, made some changes to it. I think part of the confusion in this motion is that it included a, a, a one account called an m and account, and I want to explain that to the court. Um, the debtor has five what we would call restricted accounts at UMB. They are, as you would expect, subject to control agreements, uh, what we call a DACA, a Deposit Account Control Agreement. Um, there is a sixth account also at UMB, that is in the name of Elite Sports Group, the manager of the park. And that account is also subject to a DACA with UMB. And the reason for that, Your Honor, is that the account, although it is in the name of Elite Sports, revenues from the park are deposited into that account uh, in, in, um, in the form of revenues from what we call M and O agreements, management and operation agreements, and what those agreements are, Your Honor, is they are contracts. Uh, actually, they're contracts between the park manager, elite sports, and local sports clubs, soccer teams, volleyball teams, basketball teams, whereby the 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 park manager manages those those sports clubs, arranges for practices, arranges for payment of coaches, arranges for uniforms, arranges for Use of the facilities for the club, and so that the the that those M and O contracts generate revenue, and the revenue from that accounts those those contracts are deposited into this M and account at UMB Bank. And the reason that the, that the trustee and the, has an interest in that, and the debtor does, is that under the debtor's agreement with the elite, the debtor is entitled to a certain fee off of these mno agreements basically for using the facilities so in the eyes of of the bond trustee that's funds in that account are it's collateral and when i filed the the cash management motion i thought out of an abundance of caution i would also include the mno account just so that we could be clear that it can continue to function post-petition uh in hindsight that was probably not ne- that was not necessary because the mno account is not a debtor account, it's not in the name of CARES, uh, it's in the name of Elite Sports Group, and so it shouldn't even really be part of this motion. Um, rather, the way the money flows, Your Honor, is that once the um, once the money comes into the MNO account, the the Elite Sports Group is then transfers the fee that's due to CARES to a CARES account, okay? So the funds in that account belong to Elite Sports Group they're, they just have an obligation to make a payment to CARES. So, what I've proposed in my revised order is to take the MO account out of it entirely, and we're just asking the court to grant a cash management order that deals with what we have called the restricted bank accounts, which are the five accounts that the debtor has in its name uh, at UMB Bank. Uh, I've also included some language in my revised order. Again, I haven't seen what Ms. Giamo sent over to me. Uh, I included some revised language that requires the UMB bank to characterize and designate these as, as DIP accounts. Um, so I think that- the uh,
1: checks that are issued from those accounts?
2: Uh, yeah, I would presume that when we talk about characterization, that means renaming it a DIP account and requiring that, you know, better in possession and be on the checks. Uh, you know, the typical things you would expect of a, a DIP Do account. Do they pay by checks or is it all electronic transfers?
1: I think that, Mostly all electronic, Your Honor. We always get excited about how the checks look, but not many people write checks anymore. <laughs> and, and
2: I think you're right, Your Honor. So, I don't know. I mean, Ms. Giammo can address some further concerns, but I think that the big concern I have, and I think it was confusing to perhaps some people, including Ms. Giammo, was the inclusion of this MNO and o We've taken that. Okay. Ms. Giamo?
0: Yes. So, yes, we did send over a revised <laughs> cash management order um, I think we're on the same page, it's just that the document, the, the proposed order, contains way more than what we're, what is necessary and what we've agreed to, which is basically, we have no problem with the debtor keeping those five restricted accounts and undertaking the steps necessary to convert them into debtor-in-possession accounts, because UMB is an authorized depository, um, and we would ask that, to the extent that they are recharacterized as DIP accounts. They um, are subject to the same rules and requirements that all DIP accounts are um, uh, subject to, including specifically the the collateralization requirement. That's a big one. Um, So I um, redlined the proposed order and literally just put in there some provisos to make sure that. While these restricted bank account agreements that existed before are fine, they have to be they're fine only to the extent that they're consistent with Whatever the rules and requirements are for dip accounts specifically Um, So I think we're all in agreement about that Um, The only other thing is that in the order there's two paragraphs at at the end of the proposed order regarding the operation of bankruptcy rules 6003 B and 6004 H if Mr. Taylor agrees, I mean, we're, we're objecting to the, those provisions. I'm not sure if Mr. Taylor is going to continue to insist that they be included in this simple cash management order. If not, then I can step away and we can go on to the next thing. I, I,
2: haven't, I haven't really looked at that, Your Honor. I'm,
1: I'm assuming we'll be able to resolve all of this when when I take a look at Ms. Chiamo's proposed order. Sounds like you want me to send both of you back to the drafting table, and come up with an order. I, I think, I,
2: I'm confident we're, we're going to be able to, to, it doesn't sound like there's really any material issues here, Your Honor.
0: Right. Well, I mean, we're agreeing to basically the same stuff, so I don't think it's necessary to discuss the exception or, op, you know, application of um, Federal Rule of Bankruptcy Procedure 6003 and 6004.
1: Okay. okay. Would anybody else like to speak to this issue on the cash management push. Let me ask you one question, Mr. Taylor, and that is: uh, it wasn't clear to me whether the food and beverage account includes an alcohol component. Uh, when I look at the schedules, I see a note receivable that makes mention of uh, liquor license, but I don't actually see a liquor license held by this debtor. Is there alcohol involved here?
2: There is a liquor license for the park, but it's not held by the debtor. It's held by a third it's held park.
1: by Elite. Or somebody else, I believe
2: it's held by another entity, Lifestyle Sports LLC, Your Honor, a non-debtor.
1: Non-debtor. But the account, which is designated as the food and beverage account, will receive proceeds from the sale of alcohol via Lifestyle.
2: I don't know how the flow of funds works. That's, I believe, how the flow of funds works, Your Honor.
1: All right, uh, I will approve the cash management uh, system motion uh, subject to a formal order that the U.S. Trustee's Office and Debtors Council uh, hammer out. I presume, Mr. Charles, you're going to want to make sure uh, UMV approves that as well, correct?
3: Yes, thank you, Your Honor.
1: Okay. Does anybody else need to see that order before it gets lodged? Okay, I think we've got a three party drafting committee, and I look forward to signing that order when it comes in then. All right, so Mr. Taylor, the next one is the main attraction, the financing motion, if you would talk about that, please.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. I'll just refer to this as the dip motion. It's a motion that involves both a request to authorize post-petition financing as well as use of cash collateral. I don't think there's too much um, controversy on the cash collateral portion of it. Um, I think most of the issues that we have are probably on the, on the borrowing side of things. Um, in very simple terms, as I, I indicated when I gave you my background of this, uh, the company, the, the park operates at a loss. Uh, it operates at a loss of a million dollars a month on average. And for that reason, use of cash collateral by itself is not enough to fund the debtor's operations. Uh, For that reason, we do need to have post-petition financing. Uh, We are proposing a facility that would be up to $9 million. Um, The the loan terms on that facility are quite reasonable. It's 12% uh, uh, interest. There's a 2% fee. Um, And there's an outside maturity date of September 30th, which again corresponds to our anticipated timeline in this bankruptcy case. Uh, The... um, the, the credit agreement um, and the motion contain what I would call sort of standard terms for this type of financing in regards to you know we're, the, debt, the secured creditors requiring the debtor to waive any challenges to their claims and liens and security interest They're requiring a waiver of um, other claims from the debtor. Uh, there's affirmations concerning the amount of the debt um, they're binding on the debtor. Uh, so there's, I don't think there's too much that's unusual in that regard um, in, in, in regards to what the debtor is being required to do. Uh, the security for this, Your Honor, and I think this is where some of the issues lie, is that we're asking that this uh, facility be approved on a priming basis, uh, that the, uh, uh, the trustee uh, be secured on all assets other than estate avoidance actions. Uh, that has been... Uh, carved out of the dip credit agreement of the collateral for this um, and I would add your honor that those are about the only assets that, that I can think of at the moment off the top of my head that umB does not have a pre-petition security interest in like I said they have a blanket lien on all of our assets and the only assets that are new if you will are the avoidance actions under the code so uh, we have we have proposed that the the dip lien does not um, attach to those Um, so essentially your honor the reason for the priming is that the bank and we understand this wants to be in what I call a last in first out basis the the money that they loan post petition they want to make sure that comes back to them first which makes complete sense to me Um, Mr. Berman has filed a declaration in support of this uh, and, and one of the points that uh, the main point of his declaration is to show that uh, there's really no chance at all that the debtor could have achieved or obtained financing on any other terms. Um, there's absolutely no possibility that the debtor could have obtained a $9 million uh, operating facility on an unsecured basis or a super priority unsecured basis. Uh, we are confident, Your Honor, although there hasn't been evaluation done at the collateral we're confident that the collateral is, is severely underwater. Um, the the reason we haven't done evaluation, and we don't anticipate doing an evaluation, is like I said, Your Honor, we are headed quickly towards a sale of this. The market's gonna give us evaluation soon enough. Uh, but I'm sure that I can speak for probably the, the bond trustee, I know I can speak for CARES. We're confident that UMB on its and just its on its prepetition obligations is owed probably a multiple. Of the value of the debtor's assets. Um, again, I don't want to speculate on the value, but the, the bondholders who are in first position are severely underwater. Uh, so that would mean, Your Honor, that if we were to try and obtain a dip facility from a third-party borrower, the only terms that that facility would would come in on is on a priming loan basis, um, and there's absolutely no way we could adequately protect UMB given the circumstances. So uh, in in short, Your Honor, this is the only option we have. It's the only option that we could reasonably get in the market. Um, The use of of the the dip loan proceeds and cash collateral is controlled by a budget. Uh, This budget was carefully negotiated and vetted by the debtor's financial advisor, MCA, uh, and negotiated in detail with the bond trustee uh, and its financial advisor, MTI. Um, I will tell the court that given the operating losses in history at the park, uh, both MCA and MTI have been very carefully scrutinizing expenses and seeing where uh, expenses can be cut down uh, because ultimately uh, the bondholders are the ones that are funding the operations through this DIP facility. And so it has certainly been in their interest and they have. Made that clear that the budget be as skinny as possible. Um, so we have a very carefully negotiated budget. We believe it's a reasonable budget based upon MCA's review and experience and analysis of the debtor's uh, operations. Um, and in short, Your Honor, we believe that the loan that's been offered by UMB is, is fair and reasonable, and we ask that the court approve it as we presented it. Uh, I'm certain you will hear from the U.S. Mr. Diamo can, can speak for herself, obviously. I just want to let the court know that as far as the objections go, we've received three. We received the UST's objection, which is the main, main one. Uh, we also received a limited objection from Insight Investments. Uh, Insight, Your Honor, is a company that um, has a pre petition lease uh, where the debtor is a co lessee along with Legacy Sports, its old manager. Uh, Insight just was concerned about um, any, uh, I- any sort of, um, anything in this motion impacting, I think, their rights under Section 365. We've worked out some language with their attorney to preserve that. It's a reservation of rights, so I think we have them covered. Um, Eastern Funding, uh, who's also represented here today, uh, they're an assignee of macro lease. Um, macro lease has, is another party that leased equipment uh, to Legacy Sports, the old uh, manager, and Legacy Sports is the lessee under that lease. It's probably a financing lease, but it really doesn't matter because the way the documents were structured, Your Honor, uh, it's very clear that CARES is a guarantor. They had a, they executed a formal guarantee as opposed to being a co-lessee or a co obligor So we're confident that the debtor doesn't have any interest in the equipment that is uh, Eastern Funders collateral. Um, and I just want to make it clear on the record today that nothing in the DIP motion of the DIP credit agreement purports to uh, lean any of MAC releases equipment because it's not equipment that we have an interest in. Um, so, nothing. So, that-
1: have you and Mr. Goldie worked out language? to make sure he's uh, comfortable there?
2: Well, we haven't worked out language. I mean, I think that it's clear in the, in the credit agreement and, 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 the, and the motion that we're not trying to lean anything that is not an asset of ours, and this is not an asset. So um, at any rate, I don't think there's any issues with, with insight and Eastern funding. Um, as far as the U.S. trustee goes, and again, Mr Yamo can address her, her objections more fulsomely, um, but... Some of them have been resolved. Uh, I think we have agreed with the U.S. trustee about uh, taking out some of the findings that that are in the order. There's some that still need to remain. Um, you know, our position is that, you know, we have to have clear, at least a finding that we have a need for borrowing, and we have to have a finding that, even on an interim basis, that uh, the bond trustee is um, is is acting in good faith and gets the protections of. of Uh, of the good faith provision. So uh, there are some just bottom line findings of fact we need to have even in their interim order, but we've tried to take out as many of the ones that we have proposed and that we filed to satisfy the U.S. trustee. Um, I'll I'll let Ms. Giamo explain her objections more clearly, but I think the main one, Your Honor, the one that we're going to have to deal with rather squarely is the U.S. trustee is insisting that an unsecured creditors committee have basically a look back and allow to um, upend any approval of uh, the dip financing. Um, Your Honor, at some point we have to have certainty when it comes to um, the dip financing and the liens that are granted to the bank to secure mm-hmm. that. Uh, and this is an issue that's probably more for Mr. Charles to address, but you know, the debtor's position is that for any borrowing that we do under the DIP facility, on an interim basis and certainly on a final basis, the um, the bank is entitled to the security of their DIP liens, uh, they should be protected in that regard and be protected as well by the good faith findings. So, well, the difference between the DIP
1: liens and the pre-bankruptcy liens. Right, correct. And what are you proposing to do with the pre-bankruptcy liens? Because it looks to me as if you wanted to lock those down so that they were untouchable going forward.
2: Well, that's another aspect of it, Your Honor. A separate aspect. As the debtor, we're, we are waiving the right to contest those. But the, the but the DIP credit agreement, as well as the motion and proposed order, allows an unsecured creditors committee or any other party in interest to that matter, to mount a challenge to the bank's debt, as well as the um, their liens and security. Uh, I can't think off the top of my head, but I think it's uh, perhaps 60 days from the um, 60 days from the. Final hearing date. I'm, I'm not sure when it was exactly, but there is provisions in there that leave open that challenge period uh, for other parties of interest. What I'm talking about, the concern that we have, is allowing the unsecured creditors committee, perhaps after a final order has been entered, to come back and basically challenge the dip, the dip lending, the dip borrowing. This motion, um, and that causes us great concern, and probably causes the bank equal heartburn. So. That's, that is going to be a significant issue we need to address.
1: Um, to summarize, though, you're, you're saying that uh, it's the debtors' belief that UMB is owed, call it $310 million. The collective basket of their collateral is worth considerably less than three hundred and ten, million. And a priming lien for $9 million effectively only touches UMB. That's exactly right, Your Honor. Everybody else is unsecured anyhow as a property mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I think, I mean, again, there's been some some negotiation and back and forth on this, I know, between UNB and the, and the U.S. Trustee's Office, uh, so I don't want to mischaracterize Ms. Gianna's, you know, objections at this point. I'll let her speak to them. Uh, but, you know, it's, the bottom line is, Your Honor, we need immediate access to cash. Uh, we need to borrow this week a million dollars in order to fund the operations. We will need to, before May 25th, borrow an additional $600,000. So, assuming that we have a final hearing on May 25th, what we're requesting here today is interim authority to borrow up to $1.6 million um, in under
1: an interim order with a final hearing set for that date. Thank you. Before hearing from the USc's office, let's hear from Mr. Cosman or Ms. Alaire Representing Insights.
5: Good afternoon, Your Honor. Um, yeah, uh, I'd just like to actually thank the debtors professionals. They've been uh, extremely responsive um, and we've agreed on reservation of right language um, just so the court's clear and um, this may never end up becoming the issue, but right now the budget projects less than the full amount of our lease payments that are due and so absent an agreement about you know a deferral of a portion of the rent during the budget period, we didn't want anything in the budget Anything about the liens, anything about that to affect our rights under 365 to compel um, payment in full of the, the post petition rent.
1: And the language has already been hammered out between you and Mr. It Lair. has. Okay. So we're good. One question for your colleague. I signed a pro hoc vice order. Is she, Ms. Allaire, in your Phoenix office or elsewhere?
5: She is now, yes. Uh, she had been with our firm for several or has been with our firm for several years, um, in our Chicago office and has recently moved to Phoenix. Okay, and uh, she used to work in this building, so is she going to take the Arizona Bar sometime soon? Uh, she's managed to find a way to wave in. So she has her fingerprints taken yesterday. Hopefully uh, we haven't had any bad results, Katie, mm-hmm. have we? <laughs> um, so hopefully she'll get that official here by, uh in short order. Okay.
1: Welcome back to Phoenix, New there. Thank you, Mr. Cosby. Thank you. Let's hear from Mr. Ugali, please.
7: Good afternoon, Your Honor. Um, I
4: think Mr. Taylor's uh, representations on the record that neither the dip financing motion nor the credit agreement seek to um, attach any liens or security interests in my client's collateral are sufficient, and we are, are fine with our limited objection at this point.
1: Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Yes. All
4: right, Mr. Warnicky.
1: Remind us who you represent.
6: Your Honor, I represent uh, Hayden Companies, uh, one of the um, mechanics' liens. We we did the electronic, the electric at the facility. And, okay, uh, I, I think I just heard that we're going to be unsecured. Um, didn't have a chance to file the file an objection. Uh, I was retained today. Um, I don't know is now time to speak to some of the objections I have. Just having read the,
1: let's hear what you've got to say.
6: Uh, most of Article Nine. Um, of the dip financing Um, they're waiving all the debtors potential claims against UMB Um, I understand that about 30 days ago the debtor had a change of operational control um, legacy to elite is that what you're referring to? yes and the former person who was in charge of Mr. Miller is no longer really associated with the debtor apparently and I don't know if from what I've read in the paper, uh, maybe Mr. Miller shouldn't have been in control of the money and now it looks like there's been a, a complete change. I don't see Mr. Miller mentioned in anywhere in the 100 or so pages of documents that I got to read. Um, so Miller's out, the lead is in. Uh, it looks like UMB has really taken the debtor over immediately before using the bankruptcy to strip all of the liens off the property and then sell the property. It, it looks like that's what's happening here. Um, and it looks like they're going to use today's hearing to insulate themselves from any claims that the debtor may have had as a result of debtors' former management getting money from UNB that maybe it shouldn't have had or maybe it should have used. We don't know. We don't know anything. I don't know anything. I just got the case. So I'm a little, I'm a little concerned that the, the, debtor, the debtor is willing, of course, to do anything to get money to stay open except it's not really the same debtor. It's got a different management
1: team now. So so let's make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. You've got this legacy manager now replaced by Elite, but I'm not hearing anything from Mr. Taylor to suggest there's any kind of release of any claims against either of them. Is that right, Mr. Taylor?
2: That's right, Your Honor. There's not been a release of claims by Kears against Legacy Sports or, or the Millers.
1: Okay, so then let's focus on UMB. Are you suggesting there's some... Um, there there could
2: the, there could be
6: UMB is the one with all the money that had all the money and that released all the money to I assume Legacy Sports to build the complex and the complex got built my client didn't get paid with the money that was my client was relying on to build the complex my my client so knew if there you was you think
1: boss. your client has claims against UMB I'm hearing Mr. Taylor say knock yourself out, just do it in a fairly timely manner.
6: I don't know if my client would have direct claims against UMB or not. I suspect that Legacy Cares might. I don't know if it does or not, but Legacy Cares old management is gone and the the new management is saying whatever claims Legacy Cares may have had against UMB for not handling the money correctly is gone as a, as a result of you know this 364 motion.
1: So do we need to distinguish between the debtor who is standing down and the debtor in possession who is perhaps not standing down?
6: I think so, Your Honor. I'm con- I'm concerned. I'm concerned that this 364 motion gets rid of claims. Now, they're talking about there's a 60-day carve-out, but the carve-out for the Unsecured Creditors Committee and anyone else to maybe bring claims to a look-back period, the – so that's a three or four – three or four words about what can be looked back on, whereas the release language is a paragraph long. So I'm concerned that um, it's not really the same thing, Judge. Uh, nine point, I think it was 9.2 is uh, a huge, 9.10, no, it's 9.2. 9.2 is a huge paragraph of all the things that are being released, I think it point nine point one. something all the things that are being released and I think it is and then what can what can be brought back in in The in the 60-day challenge period is like three words, so I think that's a problem
1: Okay, I think mr. Taylor is likely to understand what you're suggesting here and perhaps he's got an answer for you Why don't you both stand at the podium,
6: okay? And then, um, hold
1: on, hold on. Let's, let's address that okay. first, okay?
2: A couple of points, Your Honor. Um, first of all, legacy,
1: like I, like I mentioned at the outset, a little closer to the mic, please.
2: Like I said, mentioned at the outset, Your Honor, legacy sports and legacy cares have similar names, but they're completely arm's length separate entities.
1: So, Andy, legacy, the management company that's now out, and elite. They have nothing to do with this release, and I, I think that's clear, right? Right, that's clear.
2: I mean, the the the, the, <coughs> the the Millers who operated Legacy Sports, and they still operate, I guess, Legacy Sports, were never involved in the management of the debtor. Okay, the man, the debtor is managed by a three-person board of, of directors. Doug Moss is one of those directors. He's also the president. The Millers have never been involved with Legacy Cares, other than I believe initially the. We incorporated these. That's incorporate these. That's it. So, the debtors' management hasn't changed at all ever. Legacy Sports is a completely different entity. Nothing in this dip agreement or this dip motion purports to release claims of the estate against third parties like the Millers or Sports. In fact, those are specifically reserved in our schedules. Y'all. What the debtor is proposing to do here is release claims against UMB. And we have analyzed the relationship between UMB and CARES, and there are no claims. Okay, so it's a release that we don't feel there are claims, but the bank, quite naturally, as part of this arrangement, they want the security of a release. And that makes sense to us. (laughs) If there's there's no claims, then why are we doing it? You're
1: suggesting that... uh, While the debtor is waiving those, anybody else can come in within this window to say, well, the debtor really does have these claims and they ought not to be released. Is that right?
2: Mr. Charles?
3: Charles? Your Honor, I don't want to join the crowd, social distancing and all. Uh, If you pull up docket three, the debt motion, and I'm sorry, this is really loud, so I'll, I'll back up from it. And if you look at exhibit A2, docket 3, which is the credit agreement, and if you look at page, uh, it's PDF page 54, which is how I can navigate ECFs. And you'll see it's in a a page in the middle. It says section 9.11, reservation of certain third party rights and bar of challenges. Under nine point eleven B, the three words that Mr uh, the Council has difficulty with, it says that the, the challenge is to object to or challenge the findings set forth in the interim order, which is we're asking you to enter today, or debtor stipulations, including but not limited to those in relation to amount validity, extent, priority more words about our claims to validity, allowability, priority of prepetition debt, and see the releases set forth in the debtor's stipulations. So in our view, the challenge period is not limited in terms of scope, what issues, and the time is limited for 60 calendar days from the formation of the creditors committee or 75 days from the entry of the interim order is the DIP credit agreement. So, that the concern that the debtor is granting releases that are unreviewable is not true. They will be reviewed quickly, and in any event, this provision isn't part of the interim order. What the interim order gets us is the financing. The final order approves the DIP loan agreement, but that's in fact what we're asking for. We think it's important that everyone understand what the bank is looking for by way of protections.
1: So to summarize, what I'm hearing you say is that within this 60 or 75 day window, the debtor can't challenge anything relative to UMB, but everybody else who has any interest in this case can?
3: Yes. Mr.
1: Warnicky, does that take care of your concern? It addresses it, yes, Your Honor. Okay, anything else you'd like to address? Uh, Let me look at my notes.
6: Oh, um, yes, Your Honor. not only uh, for the $9 million, not only are they getting a, uh, a lien post-petition on anything that, that comes in uh, to protect them, but they're getting the pre-petition debt is also getting a security interest on anything that comes in post-petition, even though that would be cut off by uh, Section 552. So is that it, a question or is that a uh, statement? That, that's what it does. So they're getting, so in addition to making another $9 million loan, they're getting additional security for their pre-petition debt that they're not really entitled to <laughs> under the documents.
1: And what would you uh, propose? Uh, they don't need that extra additional today.
6: security. There are, they're, they're making a loan for $9 million. They're getting additional security for it. They shouldn't be getting, they shouldn't be getting a super priority. For their $309 million
1: that they already want. So focus on the $9 million, forget about the pre-petition amount. That's correct, John. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Charles.
3: Just to cut, so we're sure we're talking about the same thing. We may or may not agree, but let's understand. 552A cuts off post-petition lien. So if you have a continuing lien in, say, accounts or receivables, 552A cuts it off. We're allowing use of cash collateral as well as funding. And our view is, like the view of probably every cash collateral agreement I've ever read, that there should be a replacement lien post-petition to the extent that you had valid pre-petition liens. So if I have a valid pre-petition lien on some kind of thing like accounts or or something that comes in post-petition, we get the replacement lien notwithstanding 552A in that collateral. That's part of our adequate protection package for both use of cash, collateral, and the dip. If that's objectionable, it is, but that's what we're talking about.
1: Any clarification, Mr. Warnicke, that you need beyond that? I
6: was I was only objecting to something that was not normally allowed under, under, uh... Sorry, no, I was only objecting to it to the extent that wasn't something that was normally allowed under 552B. You know? 552B, you, you get a security interest on, on rents and things that come in on the property. I was only objecting to it to the extent they're asking for a security interest on the entire amount, having on things that wouldn't normally be uh, granted a security interest on post-petition.
1: Okay, he's not talking about the, the new financing. He's talking about the use of the cash that otherwise is something that uh, they would uh, preclude usage because it's their cash collateral.
6: I don't have a problem with that. I'm only talking about them getting an additional security interest just on the basis of having the original money. I don't have a problem with the additional cash, having cash collateral being used and having a security interest on that basis. I think we're talking about different things. But...
1: Mr. Charles, you had something
6: to... and,
3: and I don't. Uh, and let's use bashes as an example because you're not Judge Marlowe. If When you file bashes, The next minute, people pay money into the store. That's post-petition property. 552A cuts off your lien in that. The hypothesis that a pre-petition lender with liens on all that property should have those liens cut off and not get a replacement lien is a hypothesis that we shouldn't have Chapter 11. It'll be a seven thank you. It is something you're getting under 552A through the order, 52 2 b is an exception for post-petition rents and that sort of thing. Hotel at income, that's a different issue entirely. Mr. Taylor, one point of clarification, Mr. Wernicke. I think I've heard him
2: suggest that this was going to create a $310 million super priority claim or lien. That's not the case at all. This is not a roll-up at all. All right, The pre-petition debt is the pre-petition debt. There's no effort being made here to bootstrap that up into
1: a DIP obligation with any sort of super priority uh, in this case. Okay. Would anybody else like to talk about this
4: issue? Mr. Hawkins. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I'm only day, or moments into the case as well, so we don't have anything in writing. Remind me who you represent. Um, my clients are Spray Foam Southwest Inc., Image Building Systems, and DH Pace Company Inc. Um, several of the subcontractors who built this complex for the debtor. The um, the issue that I see in the documents, and maybe I've missed something someplace, is it appears that they're trying to keep mechanic lien holders from going on their rights against the landlord, who is not the debtor. Um, I understand that they might want us to stand down for a period of time so that they can. Do what they need to do, but these these creditors have rights directly against the landlord because they have done work on the property, and they can pursue those rights against the landlord. And yet, the documents seem to reflect that they're trying to keep us from doing that forever, and that that doesn't seem like something they could do. But maybe I'm missing something in the documents.
1: State the voting Mr. Taylor. Uh,
2: Your
0: Honor.
1: correct to say
2: that the mechanics and creditors have asserted a lien against them? They obviously don't own the fee interest, We're, we have a lease interest. Um, nothing in this motion at all purports to restrict the ability of mechanics and creditors to assert their, their lien against them. That's, the fee is not a state property, it's not protected by the automatic stay. There's nothing that we would ever attempt in a, in a DIP motion cut off that right of mechanics and holders. And, you know, I want to point to specific language as a concern. I'm happy to look at that, but I just don't see how that's even been addressed in the DIP credit agreement motion.
1: you agree, Mr.
2: Charles?
3: Right. I'm actually the author uh, of the DIP credit agreement. There isn't a word in it that you could use to say there's a stay or an injunction against prosecution of lien claims against the landlord, or a release, correct?
4: So, could we get clarifying language in the order then, to that effect? Then I'm then hell
3: I'm, no. If you if every order says, the, yourself, Mr. Shorty. I understand <laughs> that the problem with clarifying language is if you imagine something that doesn't exist and then you say, but but for the avoidance of doubt is how it's usually done, then you add this stuff to it. Now you've put stuff in the order that, that creates ambiguity, which is why I, I wanted to say on the record, on behalf of the UMB Bank, there is no such language in the agreement or in the motion. The debtor has told you the same thing. If someone asked you for clarifying language that your your home isn't subject to this lien, you'd say, that's it's not even an issue. It, it's not an issue because someone worries it could be. It's not an issue.
1: Mr. Hawkins, Mr. Ugaldi was happy with the representation on the record, why
4: are you not? <laughs> um, representation on the record, at least we've got something on the record. I don't know why it was hard to put in language, but okay. At least we have the representation.
1: Okay. Anything else you'd like to talk about?
4: Um, no, I think Mr. Warnicki actually covered, let me look up my notes. I think he covered all my other issues. Uh, well, there is one possible issue here, but I think that this also is encompassed in what Mr. Warnicki addressed. It looks to me like there was three tranches that UMB provided some of the mechanics lien holders may have had lien Issues rising between the tranches, so they might have senior position to some later UMB advances But I don't know that based on the representations that were given I'm not sure that that is anything that we don't don't just need to contest in the next 75 days if we once we dig into this and figure this out
1: and It sounds like you don't have an opposition to the window they're
4: proposing Um, No, the window should be it's obviously ridiculously fast for most mechanics lean folks to move But we'll do what we have to do because we understand bankruptcy.
1: Okay, thank you Other comments questions concerns We'll we'll get to you Ms. gentlemen is there anybody else before I hear from UST (laughs) (laughs)
0: Ready Okay. okay Thanks judge Um, So on this I do think that we are very close again um, Before the hearing we had sent a revised Order on the use of cash collateral and the dip financing and I think we're very close But I think for the record we need to clarify some things so we had some discussion with uh, Mr. Charles and mr. Taylor regarding whether or not this is a roll-up So the understanding is that it is not a roll-up and so as I understand it their, the, the replacement lien is only with respect to the pre-petition debt But the debtor is looking for the super priority with respect to the nine million. I want to make sure I'm I'm having that I'm saying that accurately
1: Mr. Taylor, is she say that accurately correctly. That's correct.
0: Okay, so I think that Clarified because we were concerned about that as well. So that is clarified, but We object, the U.S. Trustee objects to this court allowing a super priority uh, lien on unencumbered property through this interim order. We're not saying that we would object later in a final order, there's there's four days notice here, we have no idea what unencumbered property there is, how much it's valued at, that unencumbered property right now would be the only thing, besides the avoidance actions and the the claims against third, third parties, That would be the only thing that would be that would give an unsecured creditors committee or any of the unsecured creditors any leverage in asserting their rights in this case and i don't think on a four-day notice hearing this court should permit a super priority lien to that extent we are completely understanding of the need to use cash collateral and to get the financing to keep the debtor going in the interim so we're okay with uh the court issuing an order to that effect, allowing a replacement lien, um, but allowing a super superpriority uh, uh, lien on currently unencumbered property at this juncture is not okay. I mean, we don't even what have a… What are really
1: talking about is something coming into this bankruptcy that was not posted as collateral for UMB. Right? Exactly. Okay.
0: Right. We don't want – well, th- something that was not previously subject to the UMB lien. If it's unencumbered – well, no, if it was unencumbered pre-petition, right. then it should stay unencumbered in the interim period.
1: We're on the same page then.
0: Perfect. That's what we're saying. I mean, again, I'm not saying that later on maybe in a committee will be formed, maybe this, you know, you have to have, you already have two unsecured creditors coming up here expressing concern because there's only four days' notice, and that was a lot. I mean, these people have been living with this for two years. So, of course, they know the ins and outs of the agreements, Um but you know, it's not all that clear. There's a lot of language and verbiage that is just not clear. I mean, I had to get a lot of clarification from Mr. Taylor about some of the things. Um, so I think we should make clear that on this interim basis that the the dip financing is approved on an interim basis, cash collateral is allowed on an interim basis, but that the lien will not be on Previously unencumbered property. I think that that is something we stand firmly on.
1: At least on an interim basis.
0: On, at least on an interim basis. We're not looking for a final order. Um, so that's number one. The second issue, and that really was the biggest issue we had outstanding. Um, the second issue is that um, th- there was some discussion with council about whether there's a carve-out for the unsecured creditors committee during the interim period. I believe the position is that there is not. And our position, the U.S. Trustee's position, is that you have to have a carve-out for an unsecured creditors committee to come in in the interim and do the work necessary to get up to speed. So we would ask that a carve-out, that the carve-out for the unsecured creditors committee um, include the interim period. How much? I forget what the budget amount is. I don't have the budget in front of me. But we would ask that that be available in the interim period.
1: Okay. Mr. Taylor?
2: The, the, the total budgeted amount for the committee is $350,000, Your Honor, for the scope of the case. I think the concern, or the issue we might have is that I don't think there's going to be a committee doing any work during the interim period. So I'm not sure what the issue is here.
0: Well, we don't know that, right? Judge, we're going to do everything we can to get a committee in place, and to the extent that a committee is getting put in place and needs access to those funds, to that carve-out, then they should be able to have it, rather than having in the order, an order saying that they're not allowed to access those funds. So I think we should agree that to the extent a committee is created and needs to access the carve-out during the interim period, they should be allowed to. I think we can agree with that. This is a
1: timing issue you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. Your Honor,
2: I think I would, and Mr. Charles can obviously speak for himself, but the carve out is, is given in exchange for um, releases for charge and others. Um, the carve out is a give and take for that. So that's a carve out, you know, my carve out, every other professional's carve out on this is a give and take. I Assuming mean, the bank's position is that you don't get carve outs until they get those, they get the releases. We're not getting that
1: in order so I don't know why they would be caught. is it really what you're saying to me that uh, any committee that comes in will say they come in in two weeks they're going to do whatever they're going to do and you're not trying to bar them from getting paid during that time period before May 25 uh, it's just that you're not going to pay them during that period up to March or to uh, May 25 is, is that what you're telling me
0: I don't think that's what he's saying, Judge. <laughs> I think what they're saying is that the carve-out is subject to releases that we don't even have a committee in place yet to agree to those releases, so how could a committee even look at the case without having a carve-out in advance? Unless they, you know, you want to ask somebody to come in and work for free.
1: In other words, the carve-out doesn't happen unless the committee agrees to uh, all these releases. That's what I'm hearing.
0: That's exactly what I'm hearing.
1: And uh, until they exist and have a chance to kick the tires, how can they agree to anything? Anything. There has to be money available to pay them for that investigation period.
0: Absolutely. Who is in their right mind is going to come in here and say, well, there's not a carve-out in the cash collateral for my fees for me to look at this? Mr. Taylor? Unless I agree to some release that I think is not in the best interest of
1: the unsecured creditors. Okay. Let's hear from Mr. Taylor. I
2: want to try and clarify the timing issue here and what a committee might want to do or what they typically do. Um, they come in, they take a look at the secured creditors' debt and security, and they want an opportunity to challenge that. They have that. Okay, that's what the challenge period is. Okay. They can do that, and they have the opportunity to do that after the entry of a final order, when carve-out clearly in place. They have that opportunity. And that money will be there for them to do that work. All right? They don't have to do that work before entry of a final order authorizing post-petition borrowing. So, a committee can come in in two weeks, they could start their investigative work on the on the secured creditors' lien and security and, and, and their debt. Um, a final order can be entered, the carve-out can come into place, and they can still do the challenges. I mean, they, they can still have that opportunity to, get to make the challenges.
1: So, in making the challenge, they lose the carve-out? Is that what you're saying?
2: No, 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 no. We're talking about... I assume we're talking about challenging the UMB's debt, security, and the debtor stipulations, which include the releases that the debtor is given. They have the ability to challenge that after the entry of a final order.
1: And there's okay, time yet, to still that. get paid for the challenge. So they get paid
2: for the challenge.
0: Yeah. But they're specifying what they can challenge, and that's not appropriate. I think that you have to have a carve out that allows the unsecured creditors committee to come in and challenge anything, and that's you know you can't, I can't we can't hamper uh, say to unsecured creditors committee counsel before they step in the case anything you do is subject to not getting paid unless it's within the confines of this predetermined agreement that we're objecting to.
1: So, Mr. Taylor, are you suggesting there is a limited menu of what the the committee can do here, and still get their carve out?
2: Your Honor. The only restriction in the credit agreement is the committee's use of carve-out funds. $50,000 to investigate the bank's liens don't have the right to use cash collateral or dip lending to challenge the liens. equation under that, it says, basically, you can look at it, you can investigate it, but if you shoot, you better kill the king. That's basically that's the restriction that's in the debt credit agreement. Otherwise, they are free to bring a challenge to UMB's debt security, means all of that. They, there's no restriction on that. There is a restriction on their ability to get paid under the carve out. And I, res- I would submit, Your Honor, that's a pretty standard restriction on the use of the bank's money.
0: The bank has an interest in seeing this case go forward. They have a large uh, lien on uh, prepetition debt. So, you know, look, that's going to be up for the, the bank to decide. But on an interim basis, it's inappropriate to hamper an unsecured creditors committee counsel from coming in and asserting whatever rights they deem necessary. And I – maybe there is so some – So
1: let's talk about the interim versus final. Yes, an interim versus really final. hearing Mr. Taylor say is you've got $50,000 – on a final order basis to figure out what you've got here. And if you're going to challenge UMB's claims, you better win because 50,000 is all you're going to have available to you. Now you better win your fight in that challenge. But on an interim basis, that's not in stone at all. It's gonna be in stone only when it's a final order. Right, Mr. Taylor? Correct.
0: Okay, I and then maybe there's a miss we're just having some miscommunications because in emails we were told that there is no UCC carve-out during the interim period That is what we were told And we think there needs to be
1: that's, I, guess, I guess I'm not understanding that Mr. Taylor based on what you told me uh,
2: Your Honor
0: That's what the email says that's it's from today
2: only come into play once there's a final order entered, because the final order is going to, among other things, specific reasons for carveouts, release surcharge rights under five hundred six. All right, that's what those are in exchange for. They're not going to give a carve out to any estate professional, not the uses, high firm, nobody, until they get that release of surcharge rights. Okay, let's be clear about what the carve-out is an exchange for you. carve-out is for that release of surcharge rights. So, yes, the carve-out comes into play only upon entry of a final order. Does that mean that an unsecured creditors committee can't start doing work beforehand? Of course they can. But, you know, I don't know why they should be entitled to use the bank's money before the bank gets what they want in a final order.
1: That's They've got a $50,000 runway On an interim basis or on a final basis but once you get to the final basis that's the entire runway Um, and if they're going to challenge then the fifty thousand dollars is the max and you better win the challenge
0: i I, okay well then then (laughs) i was told there is no ucc carve out during the interim period so i think we need to just use just talk straight And if the debtor is agreeing and the bank is agreeing that there is a carve-out during the interim period, up to $50,000 is what I'm hearing, then that needs to be clarified in the order that we've been working on with them. I I, I hope I'm not missing that. If there's a carve-out to allow counsel for the Unsecured Creditors Committee to come in and investigate, and they have a carve-out of up to $50,000 to object to whatever they want. I don't think that they are going to agree to that, but I I guess I will turn it over to them.
1: Mr. Charles, I, I thought we had an understanding there for a second.
3: Well, I think you did, and I think it, the terms get changed. The carve-out is in the final order. A final order is not going to be entered today, so there's not going to be a carve-out in the order entered today. The point I was trying to make to counsel for the United States trustee is there is a budgeted line item for the committee, and if, you, and if we approve financing on terms that The court approves and that the lender is willing to lend on that line item is in the budget for the for the committee But if we you know if we don't get to a final order if we if we terminate for whatever reason There's going to be a lot of chaos you solve the chaos by entering a final order not going to do that today. I Get that that's fine
0: Well, I'm going to ask your honor that there be a carve-out for Unsecured creditors committee and that be part of the interim order and I think it's only fair I don't think it's fair to have somebody come in. Um, I don't know what attorney would do that, would come in and take a look at this case and serve as a committee counsel without a guarantee of payment. Um, I don't think that debtors counsel has any worry about getting paid. I think that that has to be there in place and it should be part and parcel of this interim order. I mean, what they're saying is, basically what they're saying is there is no, the way they want it is there is no carve out for the interim period. And so anything that happens in the interim period Basically, it, it cuts. It prevents the Unsecured Creditors Committee Council from coming in and objecting to, on any basis, to a, the entry of a final order, Un, and because of doing so would be in their not in their best interest because they wouldn't get paid. Do you see what I'm saying, Judge?
1: It seems like it's just the opposite. That if they're not going to let that final order uh, be entered, it's because they see a much bigger fish here, and and they're going to go for that and and forget about uh, the carve-out
0: well no, there are, but there's there's certain you know, this is very complicated stuff and they need to go in there and check and see to what extent releases are being um, you know, maybe there's problems with some of the releases that are put in the um, the dip facility agreement. The bottom line is is that you have to have a carve out that is going to allow Unsecured creditors committee to come in and look at the case which, and see
1: the, which they will get if they agree only if they agree to the, the d- final order that's gonna authorize that fifty thousand.
0: Right, but they wanted them to – that means that the carve-out is only if they agree to the terms of the final order that they're proposing right here, right now. And there's a lot of objectional problems. In fact, there's a lot of uh, problems with the final order. I mean, we're agreeing – the U.S. trustee is coming in saying we're fine with the dip financing on an interim basis. We're fine with cash collateral on an interim basis. We don't agree with the super priority on the unencumbered property, um, and we should need to set this for a hearing – at a later date. I know they want to get this done fast. We might end up having to ask that the court extend out of the hearing if, he, if the court's going to set it uh, for uh, May 25th. But in the meantime, you have to have a carve-out for somebody to come in during this interim period without strings attached to be able to look at the case for the Unsecured Creditors Committee. And I don't think it's unreasonable to require a $50,000 carve-out for Unsecured Creditors Committee in the interim period.
1: Even if they don't get their final order?
0: Correct. Um so the two things those are the two things we we absolutely 100% agree to uncumbering and the interim order again in the interim order this is none of this has to do with the final order you know everybody's going to be able to look at the documents and have more time to look at everything we have problems with some of the budget items um with some of the releases that are being proposed and then you know everybody could sit back and figure out to what extent they want to object to the final order but as far as the interim order goes there should not be a super priority lien on unencumbered assets that would otherwise be available for unsecured creditors, uh, and there should be a carve out for the unsecured creditors' committee council.
1: Okay, okay. Mr. Taylor, let's get back to the uh, the carve out issue.
2: Yeah, I, I, we're talking about sort of two issues here based on the timing of when I read comments. One is the ability of an unsecured creditors' committee to come in. Take a look at the, the banks, the bank's claims, their security, the releases that the debtor is giving, that's one thing. It's another thing to object to the DIP motion and entry of a final order. Those are two separate things. Addressing the first one, if the concern is that the that there needs to be money available for Unsecured Creditors Committee to do that work. The committee can certainly wait until entry of a final order. They are beginning being given that opportunity. There's a time after the entry of a final order to investigate the bank, investigate those claims, and, and bring the challenge if they want to do that. But
1: now, after entry of that final order, they're going to be capped at a $50,000 runway.
2: Correct. That's correct. They will be. As far as objecting to the dip motion, that's the issue that I raised to you earlier. You know, We have very grave concerns about Holding things open for an unsecured creditors committee to object to entry a or final order of approval of this. Um, but that's a separate issue. Uh, and so to me, a demand that you know there be a carve-out for the unsecured creditors committee, uh, again, Mr. Charles can speak for his client, but that seems, you know, rather presumptuous to say that the bank should pay for that, for the unsecured creditors committee. But they're not going to apparently pay for my firm or any other firm that's going to try and benefit from the carve-out, not for MCA or anybody else. You know, we're not asking for that. We want entry of a final order to get that. So I don't see why the Unsecured Creditors Committee gets any greater protection than other estate professionals under the carve-outs. We all need to have the final order entered for that. So to me, a carve-out during, carve during the interim period is, is really not an issue that we frankly should – Hold up certainly approval of interim financing, which is critical to the debtor and we need it this week
0: I just want to say that there is a reason why there should be some special protection for the unsecured creditors committee because uh, Council has had years working on this and has had the you know the ability of time to be able to negotiate a, a, a Good deal with the bank and how they were going to go forward you we have to have some something set aside for the benefit of unsecured creditors committee counsel to be able to get up to speed without saying you are bound – coming into this case, you're going to be bound by this final agreement, and you're not even going to have a chance to object to any of the items that are in the final agreement because it's final It's final order.
1: Well, that's not what they're saying at all. They're saying you've got $50,000. Well, $50,000, do. Right. Is it the fifty thousand number that you think is too light, or? Is well, I it think the, what they're
0: saying is that you can that the unsecured creditors committee council is not going to get paid unless they agree to the terms of the final order as they have been proposed, and I think that that's not right.
1: But isn't it the case that if the committee has decided they're not going to agree to that uh, that carve out amount, it's because they think they have something. I don't Much know bigger. what the reason is.
0: I mean, maybe there's releases. Maybe they have to have some leverage to be able to um, – maybe there, if, – if the court doesn't give this super priority lien, if, who knows if there's unencumbered assets I, I, that they could look to. I don't know. There's just there's just not enough information today to say that the Unsecured Creditors Committee – basically what you're doing is saying that the Unsecured Creditors Committee is, is – is not going to have an opportunity to come in and look at and object to the entry of a final order because doing, if they do, it would be against their best interest because they'd be limited to $50,000. And I don't think that's fair. I mean, on four or, or days. I notice. would
1: say they see something much bigger and more attractive so that they don't even need to get to the car route issue.
0: Right. I mean, who knows? But uh, you can't, they have to have an, uh, there has to be some. Some carve-out set aside to allow them to properly look at the case and be able to object on any basis You can't basically what they would want from this interim order is to say that the unsecured creditors committee is basically bound by the terms of of This final order at the interim, you know at this interim juncture
1: I'm with you on this. Mr. Charles you had something else you wanted to say
3: May I approach? I understand that there are two issues. Should the court on an interim basis authorize a post-petition lien in unencumbered assets for the dip only?
1: We're not talking about that yet. We'll get there in a second.
3: Okay, then on the carve-out issue, the issue on the carve-out I think is super muddled. Counsel for the United States Trustee said, if the committee doesn't agree to the entry of a final order, then there is no carve-out. I don't get that at all. If the court enters a final order that provides for the carve out, then there is such an order. If the committee objects to entry of a final order and the court enters it, then that's the order. If the committee doesn't object and the court doesn't enter the order, then there's no final order. It's the, the point is the carve out is a give in concession for the, the asks that are in the final order. Is are they does the U.S. trustee object? To the form of the final order. Now, yes, they do. Might a committee? They might. Can we sort this out in connection with a with a hearing and a final order? I think we can. And, and so, I think the other question is: is Is there money in the case for an unsecured creditors committee? Yes. If you look at the same budget I was pointing you to before, as counsel for the debtor has pointed out, there's a three hundred fifty thousand dollar budget for the committee, and then a subset of that is fifty thousand dollars to investigate the bank but not to challenge that's so there's money there it seems then that the only issue is as you've been saying timing if the final hearing is in 21 days and a committee is formed let's just say committee was formed friday which is nuts but it, it is and they retain counsel on friday then for the rest of that three week period are they certain how they're going to get paid i think they are not I think if a final order is entered with the budget and the carve out, they know how they're gonna get paid. If it's not, then there's gonna be lots of negotiation and I I said it was a mess. I, I think that's the marginal issue that's being raised here is you should accelerate pieces of the budget without the protections of the DIP financing agreement to protect the committee's activities in the next three weeks or as counsel for the US trustee said, well what if that needs to take longer. What if the final order is delayed? Well, that would be bad. But it's it's going to be bad for everyone, and it's going to, this financial risk will continue, I think, is is my view of how this works. I didn't answer your question. No,
1: you did, uh, but before you leave the podium uh, or before you even talk about the second issue, let's see if there's anybody else that wants to weigh in at all on this car route issue.
3: I won't leave. I'll just step aside.
1: I hear nobody else uh, wanted to talk about the carve-out issue, so now let's talk about the second issue, which is, is there any pre-petitioned property that is not, in your client's view, already uncovered by your client?
3: I hope not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but if there is, and only to the extent, this is on the interim order, only to the extent of advances under the interim order which Council for the Debtor has said and the budget said is rounded a million six. Um, That's part of the collateral package is unencumbered assets. I I don't think- Only
1: to that million six.
3: Only to the extent of that million six. Whatever is advanced on an interim basis because the United States trustee has properly said you need to limit disbursements to what's actually necessary and certainly nothing more than what is in the budget. So that's, that's the marginal risk, and it's as to unencumbered assets. I think super priority is the wrong word. That has more to do with administrative, super priority, administrative, all of that. If it's unencumbered and you grant a lien, it's a lien. There's, we're not priming anyone on an unencumbered asset, and, and there's no interim priming. That's part of the final order as well. But,
1: so you think you've got everything leaned up already, but so. to the extent you don't. Uh that unencumbered property coming into the bankruptcy is now going to be subject to a million six, end of story.
3: If advanced, sure. If advanced, right. right. Okay. That's right. that's that's our and, and that's in fact our proposal and our request. I understand. Thank you. One thing to correct the record the financial advisor for the trustee is FTI, not MTI, which is one of their competitors. <laughs> Sorry. Uh-huh. Right. And, and FTI asked me to be sure that I knew that, and then I mentioned it to you. So I have. Appreciate you doing their marketing. I live to serve the clients as well as the court.
0: <laughs> I just want to add something, Your Honor. Um, just for clarification, yes, we do have an objection to any lien being put on un- currently unencumbered property, even for the the interim period. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. In fact, it might not. It, we might be okay with it later, but right now for the interim period we should not be leaning up unencumbered property that's otherwise there for the benefit of unsecured creditors.
1: Okay. Does anybody want to speak to the issue about the encumbering heretofore unencumbered property? Okay. Mr. Taylor, anything else you want to say on this topic?
2: Uh, No, you aren't.
1: All right. I am going to approve the post-position financing motion and use of cash collateral uh, motion filed by the debtor. Um, as to the interim order that I'm going to be looking for, uh, it is not going to grant the carve-out. Uh, that has to uh, abide the the final hearing on May 25 because we will have a hearing on May 25 on the financing motion. Um, to the extent, uh, and so the, the carve out isn't going to happen yet, but the committee, uh, once formed, if formed, uh, will understand that uh, one way for sure to get $50,000 uh, is to agree uh, to the final order. And if they don't agree to the final order and want to contest that final order, um, my sense is, and I saw Mr. Taylor shaking his head uh, affirmatively is that they see something much better for the unsecured uh, in, in having the challenge to that final order. And so I don't see a real downside in uh, uh, not locking in an interim order uh, with an assured carve out. As to the uh, encumbrance of heretofore unencumbered property, we're only talking about at most a million six. And, uh, that, together with the other collateral that the uh, the debtor is going to uh, uh, be posting for this interim period on a super priority basis you know mr. Charles doesn't like that term um, I don't think it is much of a risk to the estate uh, and on top of everything else uh, at least mr. Charles believes his client has everything Well, we'll see about that one the committee will see about that one um, and uh, his assurance doesn't give me a great deal of uh, assurance, but uh, uh, at a million six, based on the, the magnitude of what they've already got in terms of encumbrance, uh, I see that as a relatively small price to pay for something where this debtor needs the cash and needs it right now. So I appreciate Ms. Giamo's advocacy on behalf of the UST. Um, I don't want to discourage you because uh, right now we don't have a committee, and mm-hmm. you're about the only one around wearing that hat. So I, I appreciate your coming in. Too. Uh, to raise these issues with the court, okay, so Mr. Taylor, I think we 've dealt with everything. Did I miss anything that uh, is on the agenda here
0: i i I would just want to add one thing if um, we have been working on an order that I think looks good, and now that we had some clarification from the court on these couple of issues, I think you and I can f- probably finalize that order., yeah, I
2: think all three of us can probably finalize that order yeah. <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah, Mr. Charles, I'm looking for the UST, UMB, uh, and, uh, and the debtor to work on that form of order, and uh, when it comes in, uh, I'll sign off on it. we Will be available. Okay. All right. Uh, one more thing that uh, my court deputy has suggested is we ought to set a scheduling conference. Usually we try to do that the very same day as the first meeting of creditors. I'm going to be out of town that day. So, uh, uh, Mr. Taylor, do you want that initial status conference to be May 25 as well?
2: That's fine with me,
1: yes, In some ways, I feel like we've pretty much done that today anyhow, but uh, for those newcomers on May 25, uh, we'll consider that also the Chapter 11 uh, status conference. Um, So, Ms. Bryant, what all are you showing as to be on calendar on May 25? The final hearing on the borrowing motion, right?
0: Yes, and we have the application to employ, and then the status conference, and then the finance motion.
1: Okay, and I think, don't we also have a final hearing on the, uh, the, the um, utilities motion and the use of cash or the, the cash management motion? Yes, Your Honor. I okay. no.
2: think we also added, and we have two applications that would be on that, the
1: MCA application and Miller Buckfire. Okay. Mr. Charles, is there something else that needs to be there?
3: No, but on that in that morning, I have a 9 o'clock BAP argument, so if we could push the cash collateral mm-hmm. dip, Towards the end of that calendar, I'll be here in plenty of time, but Miss Whitehill will kill me if I tell her she's handling that hearing, and that would be bad.
1: So we were shooting for the 25th at
3: 10. 10, and that's fine. It just if if this doesn't come up on the calendar until after all those other interesting things, I'll be here.
1: Your BAP argument starts at nine.
3: At, at night, it's a it's a it's a panel at nine. I I think hmm. maybe we're first. We won't know that until the BAP actually hears the argument, but.
1: Can you get the BAP to set you first?
3: I'll ask, and I'll mention that the the, the president of the National Conference of <laughs> Bankruptcy Judges would be so grateful.
1: Don't inhibit your efforts.
3: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Okay, um, but let's let's do what Mr. Charles suggested, and that is put at the back of the calendar uh, the financing piece. Okay. Okay. How much time have you reserved for this hearing? Two hours. Two hours, and there's nothing else on calendar. The than- whole day. I'm sorry?
0: There's nothing that whole day.
1: Well, then maybe we ought to move everything to 1 o'clock or something. Does that work, Mr. Charles?
3: I don't want to inconvenience anyone else. I, I hopefully would be done by, with any like 10 30, 11, but whatever works for the court and the parties, I'll, I'll work out.
1: Has any notice of any kind gone out to say May 25 is the day for anything?
3: There New was one notice.
2: Miller Buckfire, Fire, Your Honor. That I'm sorry? Was, the Millerbuck Fire application was noticed out yesterday for May 25th at 10 a.m.
1: Okay, well, let's, let's keep that one at that slot, but let's move everything else uh, or set everything else to 1 o'clock, one thirty. What, what time do you want?
3: 1 o'clock would be super for us.
1: Okay. okay, everybody okay with 1 o'clock on May 25 for everything except the Miller book fire? Okay. All right, so there's a number of orders, Mr. Taylor, I'm going to be looking to sign. Uh, if you would please contact my courtroom deputy, Ms. Bryant, when they are ready to go so that I know that they're there and we can get right to it. Thank you, all right anything else for they anybody? said
3: but thank you for hearing this on such short notice It's critical for the park and the and the people that are hoping to play this weekend. Thank you
1: We were ready to set it earlier. Mr. Charles, but uh, you apparently wanted a few more days.
3: That's I'm <laughs> causing trouble <laughs> Okay, anything else Very good. You want to Thank you. We're adjourned. Thank you